0: Hey there! You're about to listen to another episode of the Primate Cast. This one's with paleontologist Dr. Susumu Tomiya on the past, present, and future of biodiversity, bear dogs, and doing and communicating science. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation.
1: Behavior. Behavior. Primatology, primatology, Primatology. Primatology.
0: typically primates, become the monkey. Hello everyone and welcome back for another installment of the Primate Cast. This is episode number 67 and it comes out on Friday, June 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh of Kyoto University's Wildlife Research Center. And in May this year, I was joined in the studio by my wonderful colleague, Dr. Susumu Tomiya who I've worked with over the past three plus years in the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology, or SICASP, Susumu and I have worked closely over that time, developing our capacity at Kyoto University to manage international programs and teach science communication to our grad students, and of course to encourage and promote their activities in various different ways. Susumu is an assistant professor now based in the Department of Cognitive Neuroscience at Kyoto University's new Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior, EHUB, but he is a vertebrate paleontologist interested in mammalian diversity. He spent a lot of time studying and thinking about extinct carnivorans in North America. And so you might wonder what he's up to at a research institute dedicated to the study of primates, and we'll definitely touch on that in the podcast. Now we actually discuss a pretty wide range of topics, from understanding biodiversity in an evolutionary context to help us contextualize biodiversity loss in the present and in the future. Um, right through to exploring some of the amazing but sadly extinct species he'd ha- he's had the uh, opportunity to study, like bear dogs, which we learn here is neither bear nor dog. We then get on this the process of doing and communicating science and onto science education, as Sum has long been involved in, in that through programs at museums he's worked at, like Chicago's famous Field Museum, and of course now, uh, as we do together, through SciCasp. So it was such a treat for me to have and to be able to record this conversation. So I hope my enthusiasm for speaking with Susumu comes through and that you all feel a little more nourished as I did coming away from this interview with Dr. Susumu Tomiya. I think I just want to get, well, starting maybe with a big, deep, big picture kind of question um, yes. for you to get us started hot, which is how do we typically use the past to understand the present and predict the future? And of course, asking you that question is very specific to kind of thinking about the history of life and, um, and, and what it is and where it's going. So why don't you get us started with something like that really deep philosophical wow. and also practical question.
1: Okay, that's a really big question. Um, so first, so I think this is a two-step process. The first part is putting the present in the context of history So, um, you know, uh, uh, the um, former president of Germany, uh, Richard von Weizsäcker once said, anyone who closes their eyes to the past um, becomes blind to the present. And he was talking about the history of humans and human civilizations, but uh, we can't say the same thing about the history of life. And um, because we have a huge fossil record of millions of things that used to live on this planet. We know, for example, that uh, mass extinctions have happened only five times over the last 500 million years or so. So it's a super rare event. And now um, we humans are uh, beginning to cause another mass extinction. We wouldn't know that uh, if we didn't have the fossil record right so putting things in context uh, to raise alarms uh, about what's happening today especially at the hands of humans so that's step number one and step number two is like you said um trying to make use of the fossil record to predict what's going to happen in the future so um there are uh various approaches to this topic. Um, One thing I've been working on is uh, trying to better understand what kinds of animals, uh, mammals specifically in my case, are more prone to extinction than others when um, environment changes. So I've investigated the relationship between things like body size and longevities of uh, genera and species Mm. of mammals in the fossil record. Sometimes you see a a negative relationship um, but it's really dependent on the kind of environmental change that happens and what spatial scale. Um, Another um, project um, in my research has looked at co-evolution of major groups of mammals through time and um, my colleagues and i found out that for example uh, the body size evolution of rabbits and hares have been constrained by um, other groups of mammals uh, specifically ungulates hoofed Mm -hmm. mammals over many millions of years on continents so um, having that knowledge um, helps us um, foresee big changes that may happen in the future if we lose these um, interactions among different mm-hmm. groups of animals mm-hmm. and also plants mm-hmm.
0: So I, I want to bookmark these because we'll come back a bit later to some of the specific studies uh, about uh, ligomorphs for example and about body size evolution. Sure, but uh, just coming back to what you started with there um understanding the earth's history of mass extinctions. So you were involved in a paper that a large paper that has something like over 4,000 citations now from nature, um, that was actually trying to confirm whether we are indeed living through a mass extinction. So just for, um, anyone who might be curious, how are people thinking about defining mass extinctions in the past? And then how can we understand whether that process is happening now?
1: So if you look at the history of um, extinctions through time, there are these five peaks that stand out against the background. And um, basically these are events in which at least 75% of species went out of business. They disappeared from the fossil record. So that's um, convenient um definition for a mass extinction event
0: mm-hmm. and so how it, i mean from from the history or the prehistory of it we are dealing with information from the fossil record but so how can we map that onto what's happening now then to understand right
1: so what we did and this actually this paper you mentioned started out as a, a paper that was put together in the graduate seminar when Mm -hmm. I was in graduate school. Um, But anyhow, we had um, not just paleontologists, but people who are studying living animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, we looked at the um, IUCN red list to compile uh, uh, the numbers of species of animals, mostly vertebrates, because they have the best fossil record um, that have gone extinct over the last 500 years that's a time period in which the, um, um, human impact on, uh, various ecosystems, everywhere on the planet, um, has really intensified. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, basically we compared both the magnitude and the speed at which these species have been lost over the last 500 years uh, against, um, the, um, Magnitudes and speeds at which
0: species were lost in the deep past. Mm -hmm. So, how this is something that's been interesting to me as well. And um, thinking about what the typical lifespan for a species actually is, I think if I'm not wrong, it's somewhere like a million years or 10 million years, something like that in between that range.
1: Yes. Um,
0: And how do we get that information typically from the fossil record?
1: Um, so, uh, if you're a paleontologist, you go out, um, to the field, um, and you find fossil remains of animals that used to be around, you extract them from rocks, right? Um, and, uh, in the case of mammals, the, uh, typical longevity for a species is around one to two million years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you can date, um, sometimes the fossils themselves, if they are not that old, but also um, the rock layers that contain these fossils. Mm-hmm. So uh, by bracketing the first appearance of the fossil species and the last species, uh, last appearance of the fossil species, you get an estimate of how long that species was around mm-hmm. uh, in that region. And that's going to be the minimum estimate mm-hmm. because uh, most animals are not preserved as fossils, right. So there are various statistical techniques to uh, take into account the um, imperfect sampling of fossils.
0: I, I guess that this is a process of um, improvement over time, too, in how dating or how accurate dating can actually be. And um, but of course, the Earth kind of shifts around in ways that are not always fully understood. So what, what would be the current kind of error bars around that estimate of a million years for a species?
1: um i'd say that's a fairly solid estimate okay yes Uh, how much araba is there really depends on the time and place Mm -hmm. when species lived yeah yeah um so you have to have datable rock layers Mm -hmm. to begin with uh it's not always there in certain places Mm -hmm. yeah um On the other hand, uh, there are certain places where you get the time resolution of um, thousands of years, um, really fine scaled record of evolution Mm -hmm. and extinction of animals. Mm -hmm.
0: So one thing that seems to be really important then in this, you know, asking the question of whether a sixth mass extinction is actually happening is understanding that kind of background extinction rate across species. And in papers that I've seen, I mean, the current rates are much, I mean, not even close um, to what you would predict based on those background kind of extinction rates, again, with a lot of error bars. But even if you consider different scenarios of estimation and there could be conservative estimates or, you know, um, more liberal estimates. um, So how do we like how confident are we? And actually, if I'm not wrong, the background extinction rates over time have been decreasing Slightly? Or is it slightly increasing? I don't uh, quite remember. I
1: think it depends on what groups of animals, ah, okay. plants you look at. Them. Yeah. Okay. And at what level of uh, taxonomy you're looking at.
0: Right. So, Th- that's another question I wanted to ask you because I think you've also been involved in studies looking yeah. at or you have led studies looking at depending on what scale you're kind of measuring. And in and, and this we can go back to maybe the body size question because you might look at species extinction rates. You might look at Um, higher order taxonomic extinction rates and there could be some differences if I'm not mistaken?
1: Yes, uh, there could be. Um, So for example, we group species into genera and genera into families and so on. These hierarchies of um, biological organization. Um, A lot of that is imposed by us. So Mm -hmm. these are artificial concepts, but there are also these uh, clusters of ways of living you know, so it's not all um, smooth gradation Mm -hmm. in nature. And yeah, so for for this project, looking at the relationship between body size and extinction probability in fossil mammals, I was um, um, looking at the fossil record at the level of genera, Mm -hmm. that's one step above the species and the practical reason for that was because um, it's often very difficult to identify specific fossils at the level of species Mm -hmm. Um, it's more feasible to do that at the genus level and also the uh, classification of species changes a lot over time Mm -hmm. as our knowledge of extinct animals improves Um, but also it's interesting to think about um, the ups and downs that uh, these groups experience at fairly large scales Mm -hmm. of organization. So that's why I was uh, interested in genus level patterns. Mm -hmm.
0: So why ask the question though? So I I assume there's quite a lot of research on the the, the predicted relationship or expected relationship between body size and probability of extinction or survival. So what is the main hypothesis being tested here?
1: So, based on what we know about mammals living today, large mammals um, have been disproportionately at um, uh, at the risk of extinction. So, I wanted to know whether that was the case um, in the past, Mm -hmm. looking at the fossil record. Um, And it turns out, in general, no large bodied genera uh, do not have shorter durations, longevities, than uh, small bodied genera. So what we are experiencing, at least at the species level, seems to be pretty unusual Mm -hmm. in the history of mammals.
0: So are we then kind of narrowing in on the reason for it might be much more related to human activities than in in the recent past. That's right. So So, uh,
1: most of the fossil record is outside of the period in which humans existed. Mm -hmm. So their extinctions um, had to be driven by non-human related environmental Mm -hmm. factors like climate change. Versus uh, what's happening today is a lot of over hunting uh, destruction of habitats mm-hmm. and so on so the nature of the threats uh, Is really different today and so that's probably reflected in the different patterns of who's mm-hmm. at uh, risk,
0: right? I, I think I well recently I, I teach a conservation biology class in Kyoto University and we were talking about how um, if you look at a macro level, the loss of charismatic, so-called charismatic megafauna around the world is pretty biased to places that are more developed um, and historically have been have had more human expansion. Whereas in Africa, I think you still have a pretty large percentage of the original megafauna that still exists there. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing, I think.
1: hmm. So you raise a good point about um surviving megafauna of Africa because other continents also did have Mm -hmm. megafaunas up until fairly recently, Mm -hmm. geologically speaking, so around 10,000 years ago or so. Um, So we live in a world with very deep, well, I should say impoverished um, mammalian faunas in terms of uh, loss of large animals um and it's one of the big mysteries why large mammals managed to survive in africa mm-hmm. um there are some hypotheses like um, animals are more used to humans because they had mm-hmm. longer history of coexistence so somehow they hit a um, balance um but we don't know
0: yeah, but it's definitely when you use the word impoverished i might use the word just devastatingly sad that we can no longer go around and see things like giant sloths and um right would be a really amazing place saber-tooth cats, sabertooth cats we might want to you know keep a bit of distance from <laughs> right. but but actually that maybe that's a good segue then into uh some of the work that you you do so you have mentioned that you've mostly focused on um mammalian evolution and I think you have a focus also in North America. So I, maybe I'll just ask a couple of random questions from things you've worked on. Uh, and then you can, you can, you can uh, talk about them. Uh, the first one being, what are bear dogs? And oh. what are we missing since not very many people know about them?
1: All right. So bear dogs are a group of carnivores. So they are related to the living dogs, cats, bears. Uh, they are neither dogs no bears, technically speaking, but related. <laughs> and uh, this group is entirely extinct, but they used to be pretty successful. Um, so in the fossil record, uh, uh, if you go back in time, uh, by tens of millions of years, they are uh, found on several continents, northern continents. And uh, uh, initially they were little critters like, um, it's would say house cat sized animals um, that was about 40 million years ago. Um, but then uh, some of them evolved to humongous sizes. So uh, bear sized animals appeared in the Miocene, for example, and they were some of the top predators mm. of the time. So in that sense, this is an ecologically really interesting group of
0: mammals. So you mentioned the Miocene, Uh, maybe you can just date that for us specifically, and then also at the same time describe what the kind of biodiversity in North America would have looked like that surrounding the bear dog.
1: Right. So Miocene is from about 23 million years ago, um, to about, uh, uh, 6 million years ago. And, um, this is, uh, if you imagine a, a giant safari. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what it looked like uh, in the Miocene of North America. Although there was a period when it was really warm and uh, forests expanded, uh, it's called Myos- uh, Mid Miocene Climatic Optimum. But um, yeah, basically, it was uh, a wonderland for big, fierce looking uh, mammals. And uh, that followed uh, gradual um, cooling and drying of the climate coming from the previous Oligocene and Eocene before. So um, forests opened up, grasslands spread, horses became bigger and uh, we started to see things that run around pretty fast. So that's Myocene Mm -hmm. in North America.
0: And so what kind of caused the downfall of this group and also were bear dogs were they specific or endemic to north america or did no, you know they throughout are found the world? on other
1: continents mm-hmm. as well um but they were never really super diverse mm-hmm. so in that sense as a group they had a, a higher probability of going extinct i mm-hmm. think and also as you become bigger um your population does it tends to go down Mm -hmm. so big animals in general um, have higher extinction probabilities although um, if you look at mammals so okay this is going back to my body size study Uh, one of the interesting things that i haven't mentioned is that i said that the relationship body size and longevity of genera doesn't seem to be the general rule in the fossil record of North America, but there is an exception, and that's carnivores, oh, animals well. that eat meat. Yep. So, among them, large-bodied um, genera tend to have shorter durations than smaller ones. So, I think that has something to do with um, small population densities of big
0: guys. Right. So that because they're so dependent on a limited resource. That right. makes it harder for the top level um, yeah, in the Trophic Pyramid to survive, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And so, is that pretty much what the downfall was then for the bear dog in North America? Just yeah. Dwindling prey supplies?
1: Yes. Well, possibly, uh, or, or changing types of prey, mm-hmm. um, because uh, toward the end of uh, the Miocene and the next time period is called Pliocene. That's when you have um, strong aridification of the climate, so it became really dry, um, and generally becoming really dry is not good for plants mm-hmm. and animals that eat plants. Mm-hmm. So uh, that may have had a lot of negative impact on the megafauna mm-hmm. at the time, and we see many extinction of large herbivores like camels at that time. So that could have um, downstream impact on things like bear dogs. Mm -hmm.
0: So at the same time, um, there would have been other carnivores um, and top predators in the ecosystems. And I know you've done some work on wolves as well in North America. And Maybe I'll just throw this question out. People might not understand it right away, but hopefully you can pick it up and tell me where I'm wrong and what to actually take out of it. But why do all the North American gray wolves look more or less the same wherever you find them, whereas in other places there's a lot more diversity, depending on maybe it's the climate, local climates or um, habitats?
1: Well, you know, actually, there is a surprising amount of morphological diversity among North American wolves. And um, so I'm not sure how to answer your question.
0: (laughs) But um, I think you were talking about uh, ecomorphs in the gray wolves, and, and maybe less diversity in ecomorphs there. If, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes. Right now we mm-hmm. are um, losing a lot of morphological diversity within the species of gray wolves yeah. in North America. Um, if you go back in time again, we looked at the fossil record of gray wolves through time and space. Um, a lot of them tended to have short legs mm-hmm. for most of their history. Very recently we started seeing this um, long-legged morphotype in North America, and at the same time the short-legged subspecies that's known as Mexican wolves, Mm -hmm. uh, they have been almost exterminated as a subspecies. So in that sense there's been a big shift in what North American gray wolves look like over the last... um, Probably a few hundred years.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is based on, um, or what would be driving, you're looking at leg length specifically in these studies, but what would be driving then uh, the ecological or climate factors that would drive variation in leg length and right. similar traits?
1: Right. So my um, colleague Julie Mitchen at Des Moines University in Iowa, and I have thought about this and A working hypothesis is that it may have something to do with a change in the prey species of the gray wolves. So for much of their history, being short-legged was fine for them, apparently. And from historical records, we know that a lot of the gray wolves um, hunted on uh, things like bison, Mm -hmm. which was super abundant in North America until uh, the turn of the 19th century. But at that time, uh, bison and the gray wolf became subjects of uh, basically extermination in North America. Uh, They were overhunted. And so the gray wolves lose the prey base, and then they would have to switch to other kinds of Um, animals for food, so uh, we are um, potentially talking about um, fewer prey animals, or uh, smaller animals that run faster than bison, and in either case, you'd expect uh, grave wolves that have longer legs and are more efficient at covering longer distance in search of food to have some advantage in surviving. So,
0: so that's our working hypothesis. I see. Moment. Is, is there any relation to thermal regulation as well in this context? So I, y- you see some maybe general patterns as well in morphology or in body shape based on what the climate is doing.
1: Right. Yeah. So we've thought about that. Um, for example, in places where you get more snowfall, it may be advantageous to have longer mm-hmm. But like I said, uh, for much of the history in North America, gray wolves had short legs Mm -hmm. and that's true whether you go to Alaska or Southern California and across um, tens of thousands of years during which we had cycles of um, glacial periods and interglacial periods. Mm -hmm. So climate doesn't seem to have huge impact on the leg length uh, in North American wolves, at least.
0: Okay. So, um, I think one thing that's, that's coming out and I, I want to bring this back to the extinction question we started with is that, and this is, you know, anybody who's, um, who studied any bit of evolution will, will fully understand already is that there's so much contingency, um, and the interactions that species have with each other become so important in their longevity and, uh, what's going on. And so you mentioned earlier that you looked at rabbits and hares, and uh, I love the title of the, que- of the paper that you wrote about that, why aren't they bigger or why aren't they larger, basically. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. You mentioned earlier it was because maybe body size is being suppressed by some of the larger herbivores that already exist in the ecosystem.
1: Right, right. So uh, rabbits and hares are uh, extremely successful group of mammals today mm-hmm. they are found on all continents other than antarctica and they can be super abundant locally um and yet uh, their species diversity is so much more limited compared to things like rodents which are the sister group to rabbits and hares and also compared to um ungulates uh, even toed ungulates um also known as artiodactyls. So why is that? Um, also, in terms of the um, body forms and body sizes, rabbits and hairs are very limited mm-hmm. compared to these other groups of mammals. So we looked at um, the patterns of body size distribution across space today and also across time in the fossil record to uh, try to answer that question. And um, there are several independent lines of evidence suggesting that the body size evolution of rabbits and hares have been constrained by other plant-eating mammals like ungulates. So um, one of the uh, pieces of evidence was that if you look at the um, relationship between the body size of largest rabbits and hares and the smallest ungulates in ecoregions today, mm-hmm. there's a pretty tight link between those two variables. Mm-hmm. And then uh, across time in the fossil record going back to about 43 million years ago, again there's a um, really tight link between the trajectory of the largest rabbit and hare body size and the smallest ungulate body size uh-huh. through time. So they are going up and down together.
0: Uh, so so what, yeah, what is, if I can interrupt, what would be the largest fossil, uh, rabbit or hare? Or um, now are they pretty large?
1: Yeah. So they can be up to about five kilos, um, on average. Mm-hmm. And actually they've never really exceeded that limit over uh, the last 43 million years on continents however if you go to places like mediterranean islands there are extinct rabbits that weighed probably close to eight nine kilos Mm -hmm. so substantially larger than the largest living um lagomorphs and as you know on islands you Mm -hmm. have very um different kinds of dynamics going on because you have a lot fewer species living there um, fewer competitors typically um, so that may have something to do with uh, Mm -hmm. why they could become so large Mm -hmm. on those really um, special environments
0: it is fascinating i mean the other, uh, the, the flip side of that coin is the, the, the concept of island dwarfism as well. So you have can can have radically different trajectories depending on the conditions of an, of an individual species and island.
1: Yep, yep. Big animals tend to become really small on islands. Small animals tend to become much bigger on islands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been one of the major um, unsolved mysteries of biology.
0: <laughs> it's good to know we still have questions to ask. Um, I'm 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 interested to know uh, whether you have a thought on this or an, an idea on this. But if we think of the history of mammals, it seems like, and, and maybe this is why you posed the question originally. But it seems like most major groups do have pretty huge size variations over their evolutionary history, and and that can range, you know, from from tiny a few hundred grams to you know really really many many kilograms or tens of kilograms. Um, but the groups that have not probably experienced so much size variation, I mean, some would be obvious. You could, you could look to bats as an example. I mean, within bats, there's some pretty big range in body size uh, because they get down to just a few grams. Uh, and then you have these giant fruit bats, but you're not likely to find a multi kilogram bat flying around the sky. And obviously flight is a big issue with that one. But what other, and then apart from rabbits and, and hares, are there any other kind of groups of mammals that that also haven't experienced similar size variation over their history?
1: Um, hmm, That's a great question. Well, you know, and has really stand out as <laughs> having a very restricted body size and body form diversity. Had,
0: before you started looking at that, though, was that an open question? Was it something that people were interested in? Because I feel like it's one of those that kind of come out of left field, but... Obviously, I'm not a paleontologist. I I think
1: it did kind of come out of the left field because most uh, biologists, evolutionary biologists are fascinated by super diverse groups of animals. Whereas I was uh, focusing on uh, a group that was lacking in diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, just looking at the flip side of the coin. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, thinking about groups with limited uh, body size variation, well, uh, things like marine mammals—they mm-hmm. have certain constraints on the lower limit of their body mm-hmm. size, so they can't be super small. Right. You don't have mouse-sized um, sea otters or um, um, whales, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. A good that, point. that's for thermal regulation. So, so that would be another example. Uh, you mentioned bats. Yeah, that's also, uh, well, in that case, you have a biomechanical constraint on how big you can become. Yes, but otherwise, most major groups of mammals have really diversified,
0: and that's why we call them major groups, Mm -hmm. I suppose. So maybe I'll ask you a process question then. It's kind of on the personal side, but like, how do you approach developing ideas and questions to ask from the kind of data that you know how to collect and analyze. What is your process there? Because it seems like you've, I mean, you've, you've generally focused on uh, evolution of mammals and diversity and uh, macroecology. but uh, yeah, how do you devise your research programs and questions and where do they come from and what guides you? So fundamentally,
1: I'm really interested in how the diversity of mammals is generated maintained or lost over time. And to figure out um, the mechanisms behind these processes, you really need to be studying not just the fossil record, but uh, the patterns we see among living species Mm -hmm. of mammals. And so I tried to be both in paleontology and uh, what people call neontology or the study of living um, organisms. And like you said, uh, macroecology is one of the um, important areas for my research because uh, it's um, looking at ecological patterns at really big scales. Um, paleontology is great at answering questions at really big scales. So mm-hmm. that's where you see um, uh, matching scales between different disciplines. And yeah, so so I tried to draw ideas from different fields of ecology and evolution to um, design
0: my studies. Okay, I'm going to come back to this probably towards the end of the interview. But uh, a few years ago, you find yourself among primatologists at a institute in Kyoto University, the formerly known as the Primate Research Institute. And um, how? I mean, obviously, you still work and and publish in in mammalian evolution, but how was that transition to being at an institute that focuses on a group of animals that is quite distinct from the ones you focused on in the past?
1: Right. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, primates are mammals. Sure. So they do fall um, within that category. Um, But yeah, it's been really um, fascinating experience working here and learning about primates. Um, and especially uh, being based at Ineyama, I get to learn about all aspects of primates. Mm-hmm. And um, right now I have an ongoing project looking at variations in the shapes and forms of milk teeth in primates using the collections uh,
0: on Ineyama campus. Can you describe what milk teeth Oh, so,
1: so like us humans, uh, most mammals have two generations of teeth. First, they have a set of baby teeth, also known as milk teeth. Uh, we shed them. They are replaced by adult teeth. Um, so we have two generations of teeth. And uh, um, I'm interested in how their shapes are related. Between those two generations, and also across uh, different species mm-hmm. among primates, and um, this is because a teeth are super important if you are studying extinct animals. Much of the fossil record of mammals is made up of bits of jaws and teeth. Um, so if you want to understand the history, uh, you need to understand teeth.
0: Yeah. I remember being in, as an undergraduate in the University of Calgary, we had uh, a collection of casts. Um, and I think one of my projects in in one of my classes was about Antillean primates living in in the Caribbean. And yeah, so I spent quite a bit of time measuring those. Um, but I guess this is really important in a way, in a methodological sense, so that you maybe can interpret better the data that you get when you're looking at these teeth. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right. So for example, um, you use shapes of bones and teeth to reconstruct the evolutionary relationships Mm -hmm. of um, extinct species and um, baby teeth may contain useful information uh, for that purpose Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. so i also am kind of curious if you um since being here uh if you have been surprised at all or have you considered maybe some of the major differences and similarities that you hadn't considered before when including primates into the your concept your own concept of mammalian evolution
1: well what's nice about primates is that uh, their ecology has been really well studied Mm -hmm. Um, whereas a lot of other mammalian groups there's so much we still don't know about basic things like what they eat Mm -hmm. and so uh, in that sense, primates are a really convenient study group for studying uh, uh, evolution. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think so you have also spent a fair amount of time in museums in your history and including some some pretty um, well known ones like Chicago's Field Museum, which I think you're still associated with to some degree. Uh, so I, I'm kind of curious uh, and, and maybe we'll get into the kind of dual um, I don't know exactly how to say it, but you know, working in collections, working in the field, which I guess you're familiar with both of them. But do you have some specific feeling when you walk into museums of that sort? Yes. Uh, something that really inspires sure. you? Sure,
1: I feel like I'm a creature of museums. <laughs> I spent so much time uh, when I was a graduate student and then as a postdoctoral researcher in museum collections, so uh, I could say I practically lived in collections. <laughs> And uh, natural it, history collections are, are hugely important uh, sources
0: of information for understanding the biological world. So, can you describe what working in a collection is like um, from your own experience?
1: Working in a collection is enormously gratifying because uh, you know you are exposed to millions of specimens, which um, only a few people can uh, um, access well Mm -hmm. the collections are open to uh, legitimate researchers of course but uh, they are generally not open to the public Mm -hmm. there's just not enough space to exhibit all the specimens and uh, you often find new things just by opening drawers in (laughs) cabinets um, so, so that's really, uh, uh the excitement of collections based research.
0: I mean, I, I, there's always stories of, you know, some new species was discovered after, right, from a collection where it had been collected a hundred years ago or something and just sat there in a dusty shelf. But, uh, I feel there's something overwhelming as well about that. You know, you are in a room with all of this prehistory and I mean, even cataloging for people who manage collections must be a huge challenge.
1: Yes, so so you definitely feel the weight of the history of life when you are working in the collection. And yeah, for big museums, um, typically uh, uh, big museums have not nearly enough staff members <laughs> to take care of collections. Mm-hmm. So that's a perennial issue. But uh, when I was working at the Field Museum, we had an excellent group of um, not just researchers but collection staff and uh, college student interns who work together to process uh, specimens for the museum so cataloguing fossils identifying them putting them in nice archival uh, boxes and tries and mm-hmm. so on so we, we uh, took care of thousands of specimens and it's, it's definitely uh, a lot of work mm-hmm. that Tends to be underappreciated because it's not super visible to the public. Right, it's not the most glamorous part of uh, paleontology or zoology, but super important.
0: So how? I mean, in within a collection, of course, there may be things that are left for later to discover new information from. But how does a place like the Field Museum, and and maybe that's not the best example because it's itself is already quite famous in this in this um, lands, uh, landscape, but how would a collection manager or an institution that has a collection promote it in a way to attract researchers to do work and increase the value of that collection? Because a lot of work has got into it, um, putting it together and keeping it for some purpose, which is not always clear right away, uh, especially to people funding things like that. But so, so how, yeah, how, how does yeah. that happen?
1: So in recent years, there has been a big push to digitize collections mm-hmm at many uh, major natural history museums, so taking really good pictures of specimens or 3D scanning them and putting them on the internet, um, making them available to anyone in the world. So I think that will um, help um, open up collections to more researchers and uh otherwise yeah it's it's often uh visiting graduate student scientists Mm -hmm. and um um, people like retired professors (laughs) who have enough time to browse through collections to uh, look at specimens
0: that's fascinating um i myself have very little experience i know that we have a collection uh, of, of uh, fossil primate or casts and also a, a big collection of bones from the kind of historical study around japan so what is your impression of the collection here and um, i guess you're using it for studies of milk teeth
1: yes yes not just using but i also take care of the collections mm-hmm. of um non, non-primate vertebrate uh, osteological specimens so bones of dead animals basically mm-hmm. we have a lot of uh, for example uh, tanukis Okay about 400 specimens right wow. now uh, with my colleagues here on Indiana campus and uh, so, so we make specimens from dead animals uh, we catalog them and uh, we preserve them in mm-hmm. the collections uh, I think our collection is actually one of the major osteological collections inside Japan Wow Yes and uh, all the um, information in terms of what we have in the collections, is open to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a searchable database online. So we are really hoping to attract more people come here Mm -hmm. and use them for research. Mm -hmm. Not just research, but also for educational activities. So I um, go out to this uh, university in Nige Prefecture once every year to give um, guest lecture to students who are ceramics majors. Oh wow! so this is an art school basically Mm -hmm. and uh, these people are really interested in the shapes of natural objects like bones so I talk about um, mammalian bone morphology and they get inspirations about their creative projects (laughs) things like that
0: yeah yeah that's really exciting I mean I, I feel like when you have a collection that's one obvious way to use it is to engage with the public of, of from different types of audiences. And I know that you've been involved with various educational programs through your experience at museums. Um, so can you maybe talk about that too? Is it something that you, you were always interested yourself in was being able to share this kind of natural history knowledge, or is it directly because of your work at museums that you were exposed to these kind of educational programs? Or because I think the education is something that's quite important to you.
1: Right, I guess I started um, being involved in educational outreach programs back in graduate school. There was um, a strong push to uh, communicate the science of paleontology to the uh, local communities when I was a graduate student. So we had a lot of events where we put out um, fossils on the table and interacted with members of the public was always super fun
0: mm.
1: and then um, at the Field Museum uh, one of the most rewarding things about my job was looking at these school children coming to the museum and getting super excited uh, by the exhibits and there are also uh, a bunch of student interns and I um, put out um, fossils for outreach activities and uh, it's just um, really encouraging to see regular people get excited about <laughs> the science you do. Yeah. So there's uh, a real joy in that process. And also, you know, paleontology, uh, a lot of people think it's all about digging up dinosaurs and assembling skeletons uh, to uh, exhibit them on, uh, in museums. but We do a lot more than that. So um, paleontology can be a good gateway for talking about the current biodiversity crisis, for Mm -hmm. example. So those, I think, are really um, missions for uh, many of us who work in this field.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because people can think of um, major institutions where they can go and learn about life. Museums is certainly one of those, and places like zoos is another example of it, kind of in a different way, obviously, um, exhibiting the living and then exhibiting the dead. But um, one of the challenges that zoos has have uh, or has is the understanding whether what they're trying to communicate is being received, you know, by the visitors. A lot of people think going to the zoo is a great day out with your family, and um, you know, you can have this nice time. But it's not necessarily about education. Uh, All those zoos now have revamped their missions in the last, say, century uh, or over the last century to include, you know, in, in providing information and education about biodiversity, uh, about conservation, uh, more recently about animal welfare, things like that. But it's a constant struggle to know whether that it, there those educational activities are, are actually um, valid or, or effective. Right, and so that's something that's been been plaguing the world as well. And I'm I'm wondering maybe if you can talk about that kind of situation in museums. I mean, on the face of it, it seems like museums are much more geared around educating people about things, and it's not only um, you know about life, but it could be museums of art and things like that. But what's your perspective on that? Do do, do museums do a good job currently, and in what ways? And in what ways can they? potentially improve their educational capacity, especially if, as you just mentioned, they can also be a place to educate people about biodiversity. And the ultimate aim of of that is to make them care about the natural world and protect it.
1: Right. Um, So that's a really good question. It's easy enough to do these um, um, questionnaire type surveys with museum visitors to try to gauge what they got out of their experiences of visiting places like museums or zoos. But really, we need to be thinking about the effects these um, institutions have on people over a much longer time span. Mm -hmm. When when these kids become adults, um, Mm -hmm. have we made any impact on them in terms of taking actions against climate change or biodiversity crisis? I don't think we have a great way of predicting it or measuring it right now. But it's definitely a major um, challenges Mm -hmm. for natural history institutions.
0: Yeah, I can't really think of any kind of cohort studies that started with with kids at a young age visiting a specific exhibit or a specific museum or zoo. Because you have those for medicine or for psychology or for various purposes. Um, And obviously, it might even take multi-generations of scientists studying that cohort uh, over time. But it would be interesting to know if there's any going on for this uh, preparing people for the future of biodiversity and our stewardship of nature.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid the typical research funding cycle is too (laughs) short for something like that, but there's definitely need for that. And the other thing that um, institutions can do is not just to receive visitors, but to go out to the community and go visit places like um, public schools, mm-hmm. um, bring their collections to classrooms where um, serious scientific subjects are being discussed, mm-hmm. as opposed to people just hanging out to um, have fun for entertainment. Um, so, so, th- so that's the real outreach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I think a lot of us should be making more effort in that direction, mm-hmm. getting out of our, um, you know, little
0: comfortable buildings. You uh, could call them ivory towers, I suppose. We sometimes. could, we could, yeah. <laughs> so, in the, all this talk about education, and um, did you have mentors? Were mentors important for you in kind of shaping who you've become as a scientist and an educator? Does anything jump out for you?
1: Yeah, I have a number of uh, mentors. Um, I think I have to thank my father, uh, first of all, because uh, so growing up, I was uh, really into insects. Mm-hmm. Um, catching butterflies and dragonflies in my neighborhood in a city called Kuana in Mia Prefecture not too far from here in Mm -hmm. India and uh, that's how I really got interested in
0: the diversity of
1: life and then in college if I can just
0: interrupt I feel like in in Japan so many kids are just fascinated by insects and including my own especially my son yeah but I find it a little different because when I growing up in Canada I don't think that people were that interested in general certainly no one among my friend group was interested in insects Mm. Um, They might go around using a magnifying glass to burn an ant or something on a sunny day but apart from that um i can't recall any uh, anyone in my my group uh, who had an insect as a pet for example uh, who kept them and so what's going on here i think it's a nice
1: tradition here Mm -hmm. um although even when i was growing up a lot of kids are more into playing video games than catching insects um (laughs) it may be sort of um going down, Um, I hope not. I'm glad your kids are uh, still interested in bugs.
0: When we take the uh, headlights out in the backyard at nighttime in the summertime, it it can be pretty fun. Um, Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. yeah, they're they're definitely still around.
1: Yeah, and I don't know so much about Canada, but uh, but there's so many bugs around here. Japan Um, is a
0: buggy place. Yes,
1: yes. And also, at least traditionally, parents encourage their kids to just go out and play Mm -hmm. um, outside of houses. And Mm -hmm. uh, you you just see butterflies, grasshoppers, uh, cicadas, there are millions of them around. So naturally, uh, kids are attracted to these things, I think. So that's how I got hooked, I guess. and uh, um, became interested in uh, uh, the diversity of life and then in college I had um, opportunity to take a graduate seminar on mammalian evolution Mm -hmm. uh, which was taught by Ken Rose he's um, expert on mammals that are 50 to 60 million years old and uh, I, I was really fascinated by the history of uh, mammals so that's how I decided to uh, pursue my academic career and in graduate school so up to that point my interest was in the fairly classic mammalian paleontology mm-hmm. but um, going to uh, graduate school um, gave me um, um, a new direction in the sense that my um, advisor um, Tony Barnowski was someone who was uh, uh, really at the forefront of cultivating this new um, subdiscipline of conservation paleobiology mm-hmm. learning from the fossil record to understand what's going on to today's biodiversity and how we can protect it for the future mm-hmm. So that's where I got this um, sort of a
0: integrative. Um,
1: um, approach to science.
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely comes out, and I, f- I find that that last part you mentioned quite interesting. Um, I'm not sure. There's probably a certain public perception of what a paleontologist is, and you alluded to it earlier: somebody who puts together skeletons or fossils for collect or for display in museums. But it seems like there is a movement um, now to involve uh, paleontology in. And that's probably why I started the interview the way I did um, in what's going on now. And I think that's a really good um, perspective to have. I mean, anytime, I think as science progresses, usually um, people think that it's the merger of disciplines that lead to the best discoveries. And so I'm looking forward to what continues to come out of that field. Um, But so we talked about museums, but you've also done some things in the field. And so you said you're a creature of museums. But what about a creature of the field? What are your experiences there? And, and uh, how do you feel about doing field work versus working in collections?
1: Right, so we talked a little bit about this project, um, looking at wolves in North America. Mm-hmm. So uh, related to that study, um, when I was a postdoctoral researcher, uh, my um, postdoctoral advisor, Julie Meachin, at Des Moines University in, in the state of Iowa in the US, and her team, uh, we, we all went to this um, really um, um, cool cave in northern Wyoming. It's a vertical cave that's about 25 meter deep. Um, we went down into this cave, and there uh, there are thousands of bones of ice Age mammals mm. at the bottom of this cave. So uh, we collected these fossils, and uh, yeah, that was probably my uh, most fun field experience to date.
0: I think you have photos up on your website of you rappelling down into this. yeah. So how deep is this from from the surface?
1: Oh, so about twenty five meters. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you have to uh, basically uh, rappel down mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah once you are down there um it's cold <laughs> um even when it's uh, uh hot outside inside of the um cave is like uh, uh, inside of a refrigerator wow so that's supposedly good for preserving the original organic materials mm-hmm. of these bones and so uh, uh we've been studying not just um, uh, the shapes of the bones and teeth, but uh, uh, some of our colleagues have been they've extracted ancient DNA out of these fossils mm-hmm. and used them to reconstruct the population histories of different species of large mammals mm-hmm. since the last um, interglacial period.
0: Mm-hmm. So kind of returning to this perception question, but uh, You know, I think there's a lot of romanticism on both sides about discovering new fossils, for example, um, eh, or, you know, building something for display in a great museum. Uh, And then there's this idea of what the person doing it is kind of like. So, what I think we've talked about this before and you've presented about this before, but what are the kind of common misperceptions or misconceptions about what a paleontologist is? Um, that I don't know if it's it ever irked you or just things that you confront and um, and then what would people be surprised about to learn that you something about what you do
1: right so there are a lot of misconceptions about paleontology and the uh, romanticism that you mentioned it can be good mm-hmm. um, you know people call paleont- paleontology um, gateway drug to science. <laughs> um, so, so it can be good, but at the same time uh, not all of us are looking for dinosaurs. Actually <laughs> most of us are not looking for dinosaurs. And uh, also uh, the time we get to spend out in the field collecting specimens is a pretty small part of our professional um, activities. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I wish if I could spend more time out there, but um, the reality of being an academic uh, is you know you have to teach classes and uh, like I said take care of collections mm-hmm. and things like that and um, another I think misconception nowadays is that uh, I think people have very masculine image of paleontology oh, I see. so if you look back um, at, uh, movies like Jurassic Park series. Uh, uh, The major characters were all males. Well, there was this uh, female graduate student who was a
0: paleobotanist. But anyhow, you know, I recently went I recently reread Jurassic Park, the original novel by Michael Crichton, uh, many years after reading it the first time before the first movie came out. And in 1993 or four, whenever it was that the the movie came out, and the book was shortly before that, I didn't really notice it, but in the movie, the character you just mentioned, the paleobotanist, uh, Dr. Sattler, I yes. is her name, yes. she actually has a pretty good role in the movie. Maybe it's not quite as um, you know, in, in your face as the, some of the other characters, um, but she comes, in my opinion, comes across pretty well. But rereading the book, Michael Crichton did her a very bad disservice she has a tiny role in the book mm-hmm. um, and really just kind of a cliche character that doesn't have any influence on in the plot. Whereas I found in the film, she actually gets a little bit more recognition. So that was one, one case that I, I don't know, maybe it happens a lot when you when you re-look at some piece of, uh, whether it's literature or go back to old movies or something, uh, you can get a very different perspective mm, as the times themselves change, of
1: course. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, so, but uh, we have a lot of um, uh, really um Hardworking and talented women and um, uh, LGBTQ people working as paleontologists mm-hmm. these days. So the field is a lot more diverse than many uh, people in the public realize. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It um, kind of, I guess that's kind of a good segue to think about how the last few years have gone for you too, because you joined the Center for International Collaboration in Advanced Studies in Primatology here. Uh, previously at the Primate Research Institute. And we continue, uh, we've been working together for that whole time. And one of our major missions is, is kind of outreach and education. And I suppose we try and do that in a way that's inclusive. Um, our graduate group obviously is, in some sense, it's narrow um, because it's people who are all interested in this really esoteric thing of primatology and wildlife science. Um, but it also includes people from all over the world. And so what has your, been your impression of um, joining this program and, and being an educator within our, our graduate program? So one of the things that pleasantly surprised me when
1: I joined uh, the Private Research Institute back then was how diverse the community of international students mm-hmm. and scholars was um, on the Indian campus. You can meet people from all over the world just being at the PRI. And uh, so it gives us an incredible opportunity to have uh, cross-cultural conversations about um, the best ways of internationalizing science. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we tend to conflate internationalization with westernization yeah. oftentimes. But um, we have uh, a lot of people from non-western countries, and yeah. I think this is... Uh, Uh, that gives us a great opportunity to think about more inclusive ways of moving forward um, in terms of diversifying the community of scientists Mm -hmm. and um, reaching out to communities of Mm non-scientists as well Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and i feel like you mentioned earlier um, about getting out into communities i mean i think one of the most important points of having a strong international community here is that each one of them will I mean maybe not directly but will eventually be able to influence people around them where they come from and, and maybe even more broadly than that um, so I agree it's a great opportunity to have people and sometimes just to, to, sometimes stimulate or creating environments that are stimulating to everyone equally and allow everyone to have a voice can be pretty challenging though
1: yes yes Um But I think in the last few years, uh, we've had a lot of success in encouraging our graduate students to be more engaged in science communication, uh, not just professionally, but um, directed to the public. That's right. Yeah. Um, So we had, um, you know, some of the graduate students um, uh, gave award-winning um, short talks and yeah. things like that, so uh, I'm really proud of them. Yeah,
0: <laughs> mutually so. It's a, it's a nice, I mean it's great for us to be able to say we have students that are that bright and, and, and take that kind of initiative, but it, I think it also is a testament to the fact that we're trying to encourage people to do that in any kind of way and it's something that's really important to us here too.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's really important to really um, make an effort to push science communication and public outreach, because otherwise all of us are under heavy pressure to uh, publish papers. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's easy to forget these other responsibilities of scientists, yeah. I think.
0: So on that, do you, okay, so one thing you haven't mentioned, but you talked earlier about having mentors as an undergrad and a grad student. So you went to school in the States, you were an undergrad at Johns Hopkins and then a grad student at UC Berkeley. and. Uh, but you grew up in Japan to a point and now you're back in Japan so you kind of are in a unique position to see this um, you know whether it's things like how paleontology is done or how science is done and how it's communicated in two very different um, cultural uh, communities and so can you talk a little bit about that I mean what were you so maybe I guess you went to the states at a pretty young age you must have been in high school if I'm mistaken was. so you might not have like the most uh, formulated version of what it would have been like in Japan at the time. But what were the kind of things that you thought were different as a student in the US, as, as, a, as an undergrad and a grad student? And then on the flip side, what do you kind of, not necessarily struggle with, but what do you find surprising in this same sphere, having come back to Japan now? Not to put you on the spot with a rather challenging <laughs> question.
1: Yeah, um, so, Well, um, I think one major difference uh, that I was surprised by is um, the opportunities for teaching as graduate students Mm. was quite abundant um, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you don't want to spend too much time working as a TA, um, but uh, I spent practically half of my graduate school teaching classes. undergraduate biology courses for the most part and um, that really um, cultivated my love of teaching and uh, um, also it, it's really a craft, you know, so um, uh, um, that was a fantastic opportunity um, and and here I wish if uh, more graduate students on Ineyama campus had uh, similar experiences, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not as much as me (laughs) Uh, I could have used a little more research time but um, yeah so uh, we try to work with uh, a few teaching assistants uh, every year Mm -hmm. uh, at at SACASP but um, yeah so that's one major difference
0: I definitely concur I mean I did my PhD or doctoral studies here in Inuyama and I was really looking for opportunities to teach and get engaged be a TA and not necessarily in the way that's possible around here, where you might be a tech person who sets up, you know, projectors or computer stations for a certain lecture that you have nothing to do with, but actually being involved in a course, as I was as a grad, as a master student in Canada, um, and but it was hard. And even here in Inuyama, like it's a graduate institution, so we don't have undergrads here. So there's the professors themselves are not teaching that much. So the but once I flipped that side and became a lecturer at Kyoto University, I've almost always given opportunities to grad students to become a TA. And usually I'll hire somebody as a, with funding from the university uh, as a TA for my courses and uh, for postdocs and things. I always offer guest lectures in my classes um, within the theme of what we're discussing. But, but yeah, this is, was a big thing for me too that I felt was really lacking um, in that part of my education. So I, I'm really happy to be able to share that wherever possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, Um, otherwise, uh, let's see, so, um, (laughs) um, yeah, um, I think I I was also surprised by how uh, uh, international um, Kyoto University was. So in that sense, things were not that different uh, back in the U.S. and uh, here in Japan. Mm
0: You know, I it, it makes me wonder though because I originally people have this impression that Japan isn't as diverse as many other places and that's true in terms of the population. It's a very small percentage of it which is uh, you know immigrants or not of non-Japanese origin. But actually here at Kyoto University uh at at our institution in Inuyama campus and our sister at the wildlife research center in Kyoto, I think more than 30%, close to 40% of our student body is international now. And that's changed a lot over the past 10 years, especially with places like SciCasp really helping, providing a, a gateway, an entrance exam for, in English for, for people to come. But if I think back to my own grad experiences in Canada, my cohort was far less diverse. So by and large, most of us are Canadian. And of course, in Canada, you have a lot of different um, backgrounds of people as well and different ethnicities, uh, which, is, which is just a natural part of the, the culture and the, the community. Um, but there were much fewer international students in our program It is, of course smaller so here we have many departments and many faculty members that can take students so but i just think it, it feels a little more diverse here even and i don't know if that's your experience in the states where you were at uc berkeley for example but uh but i i'm always pleasantly surprised um in our community anyways at how diverse it is
1: yes yes Um, And uh, one interesting difference, I guess, is that, yes, uh, we did have a lot of international students at at my um, graduate institution in the U.S., but uh, a lot of people who come to study in the U.S., they obviously try to integrate themselves Mm -hmm. to uh, the American society and culture. So um, for example, the way people speak, even when they are not native speakers, they try to. Imitate the way um, people speak in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, you, s- you hear a lot more variations um, of English, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. And it made me think about um, how we should be um, teaching science communication, for example. Um, so, uh, I think um, the way forward is uh, becoming more inclusive mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how people speak. Um, for example, um, we shouldn't be pushing too much to standardize uh, uh, English language communication and instead get more used to hearing different uh, varieties of yeah. English being spoken. So. So yeah, I have not have thought about things like that had I not come here right. to India. Yeah,
0: that's that's an interesting part of a much bigger discussion now and even including publishing in, in, in science or other academic circles. I know recently I noticed uh, some journals have begun accepting abstracts in multiple languages. So you could write an abstract in English, of course, for the international community, but include an abstract in your own native tongue, which is a really nice touch, I think. Um, If not the whole paper, at least you have a summary for people in the native language. Um, But there's also the flip side of that where a lot of times, um, and you know, we help a lot of international students and Japanese students with their English in manuscripts, for example. And it can be quite trying because it's a huge handicap, obviously, to publish in English when that's not your first language. And reviewers can be pretty harsh and editors can be pretty harsh on language. Um, so a lot of times people are left with either finding good colleagues that can spend a lot of time with them to to help with the English or paying for professional translations, which are done by people who are not specialists in their field. And so it can often lead to different kinds of problems. But do you have any thoughts about this? I mean, I've, something I've been thinking about more and more, too, is how what kind of a standard do we need in an international scientific community? Things need to be understood and specific, especially if they're technical. But I don't think the technical terms are what non-native speakers struggle with, because if they're in a field, they're specialists in a field; they know the technical language. It's more the putting it together in a narrative in prose that that challenges them. So, it's something maybe I haven't thought that much about. But more recently, what do you think about that? I mean, should we really be trying to upkeep a certain standard of English in all of our scientific publications?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think we need a. Uh, um linguists here to have that (laughs) discussion. But uh, to some extent, I think uh, the kind of editorial culture at journal offices uh, needs to change to be more accommodating. Um, Obviously, uh, whatever people write needs to be intelligible. Mm -hmm, Of course. And uh, I've reviewed papers that were written by non-native uh, speakers, writers of English, and uh, sometimes I had great difficulty mm-hmm. understanding what people are trying to say, and uh, not not because there were grammatical issues, but often it had to do with word choice.
0: Mm-hmm. Structure is a big one too. Yes, logic. Yes.
1: So there's that. Um, definitely, we we do need to have some standards, but uh, I think um academia can be a little more open to uh uh, linguistic diversity i think Mm -hmm.
0: yeah maybe one of the big problems as more and more people get access to um to even being able to to conduct some kinds of research from around the world i think it's really opening up in in a really good way and um i don't think this kind of problem will get easier over time but we'll have to get creative i think and find new ways to really make that as inclusive as we can. Yeah. To give everyone a voice.
1: I mean, I was uh, recently listening to this uh, podcast and uh, there was a discussion about teaching English to non-native speakers. And um, apparently there's this research showing that when a bunch of people, none of whom is a, a native English speaker, communicate in English, um, things work better than when <laughs> a native speaker joins that group in terms of
0: things like business communication right.
1: so so that's something to think about
0: yeah so maybe like the large herbivores and lagomorphs there seems to be some kind of contingency that happens to people when there's someone right that's <laughs> more specialized to something yes Makes it harder for the rest to grow yes yes <laughs> let's leave that as food for thought um so just to kind of get towards the end of this interview. Uh, I know that you, just briefly continuing on the, the the topic of education and outreach, I know that you've been involved in some publications of looking at how we can improve the use of, whether it's collections or field sites or whatever to engage the public or, uh, you know. Um, so how did, I mean, that's obviously a transition. It's something you've been involved with for a long time, but the actual writing and publishing uh, is that something that you're going to continue to try and do and work on and uh, maybe works towards to be a, a bigger voice in that sphere?
1: Yes, I hope so. So before I joined uh, the Primate Research Institute, I was uh, working as a postdoctor researcher in Iowa, and there uh, we had this after school program for high school students from local schools, and uh, we we basically had these hands-on lab activities, teaching them about uh, vertebrate morphology and paleontology. And uh, we supervised their individual research projects and uh, you'd be amazed at how much um, high school students are capable of doing <laughs> in terms of conducting scientific research mm-hmm. anyway. So we, we uh, reported on that after school program recently. And uh, I think it's important to document these um, efforts mm-hmm. in education focused journals uh, as a means of sharing knowledge and ideas mm-hmm. with other scientists who may be thinking
0: about um, engaging in public outreach mm-hmm. programs themselves. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, just to close up, then what are you, you mentioned that you're working on uh, various things, including this milk teeth project, but are there any other um, big projects that you're ongoing that we haven't talked about or that you're hoping to start in the near future?
1: So this is uh, much more of a long term study, um, informal program, but there are a number of really important Miocene fossil localities in the vicinity of Inuyama along Kiso River. Uh, these uh, places that have yielded something like 19 million year old fossils mm-hmm. of plants, mollusks, fish, rhinos, and uh, I've uh, visited these places with a number of graduate students from Inuyama mm-hmm. to uh, look for fossils, and uh, we are getting better at finding fossils. <laughs> it's been really fun, and so. Uh, trying to build a um, um, collection of fossils from uh, this area is something I'm really interested in. Okay. Pushing. hmm
0: So my last question then, and I just thought of it as you were talking about that, but since you're a paleontologist, and I know you've worked maybe mostly in, uh, in Miocene collections, but if you were to pick the faunal diversity of a specific time period in Earth's history, Uh, as being the most fascinating which would it be and why?
1: Well, so my um, expertise is in the period of Eocene or the epoch of Eocene from about uh, 35 to 55 million years ago and this is when you see the ancestors of dogs and cats before they diverged into different lineages And I'm uh, fascinated by their evolution uh, in places like North America as the uh, climate change was taking place and landscape was changing. And uh, these are groups of animals that few other people who are alive today are studying actively. So uh, yeah, Eocene of North America uh, with little um, dog Cat Ancestors is my favorite place to work in.
0: So for anyone listening with dogs and cats, maybe you've found the place that you need to start looking for the origin stories. Right. <laughs> Dr. Susumu Tomiya, thank you so much for being on the Primate Cast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife science, to the conservation of species, and to the sharing of scientific knowledge. The podcast is hosted and produced by Andrew McIntosh, with artwork from Chris Martin and music from André Gonsalves. It is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at Kyoto University's Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Drop us a line anytime to say hello, to tell us what you think about the show and to suggest future guests for the podcast.